G'day friends, Josh here. Just a super quick chime in to let you guys know, this is part one of a conversation that Mel and I had with global tennis strategy expert, Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig has some really close ties to the local area, which you'll hear about in this interview. Craig is best known for his recent work with Novak Djokovic and his past work with prominent players like Kevin Anderson. Check out punchingsideways.com to listen to the show, share it with a friend, or press on a coffee button to support us. We'd really appreciate that. Okay, we'll jump in now with Mel and I, and I'll catch you for a wee sec just at the end of the episode, just to let you know what's going to happen in part two. Okay, let's do it. Hey, welcome, Josh, to your, well, our space, the Punching Sideways little hubble that we've got here. Uh, I wasn't really impressed when you booked this guest, I'll be 100% honest, because you told me I had a curtain call at 8 o'clock in the morning on <laughs> Saturday. and So not the human, it was the time. <laughs> it was the time. Yeah. It was the time, and I think my reaction was yuck, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. But, but then I got to find out who it was a little bit more, Craig O'Shaughnessy, and I thought, you know what, you can get out of bed. And you only have to wear your flanny, which you wear any other day. So yeah, it's not like you, you have to get dressed. I up don't have the... to get dressed up for the occasion. I just have to bring bring myself and my body and get here, and I made it, and I'm glad. You did. You're even early. So Craig O'Shaughnessy, why why are we speaking to him at eight a.m. in the morning? Oh, this is a um, hashtag producer Josh moment, I think, and he is over in Austin, Texas. Yeah, bigger than Texas. I don't know how big it is over there, but Texas is rather large. Josh, this is, I think, for you a bit of a fangirly moment. It is. I'm a fan of Craig, massive fan, but yeah. I'm also an even bigger fan of who he's worked with. My favourite athlete of all time is Novak Djokovic, and he worked with Novak for a couple of years. And dare I say today, oh, I mean, I've known about this. I think you've told me about your fan fandom of Novak and Novak. We can't even no say Vic. Oh, mate, the daggers that I just got then from not pronouncing his name right was intense, like it cut me in the heart. I'm right sorry there. about that. That's how I feel as well. <laughs> yeah. So now we've both got cut hearts. Um, but this was – you mentioned him like when we first started collaborating, I suppose, of like who would you like to get on? And – he was on the list and I was like, oh, yeah, cool, let's let's do that. Yeah. And now that it's happening, I'm actually realising what a big deal it is to you because you've been, dare I say, a little bit short with me this morning. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was – partly I was trying to set up the Skype yeah, call. Okay. But also, and I was singing and yeah, just – you came crap. here at 7.30 in the morning singing a lullaby <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I wasn't particularly – up for that. I no. haven't interacted with another human yet. Yes, that's true. And I forget that once so I... So a male injection when you haven't had any <laughs> other human contact is pretty tough. <laughs> You're welcome, guys. So I'm hoping that you guys are listening to this with no other injections for the day. Yet. Yeah, correct. <laughs> so you're about to get an injection of Craig. So Craig is the founder of Brain Game Tennis, which mm. is basically the world's leading tennis analytics website. And he is seen as one of the global experts in that field. He kind of is one of the people that helped it rise to prominence in the sport. Mm -hmm. So he holds a very esteemed place currently as well as being part of that is that he's on the Wimbledon media team. Yeah. And Wimbledon still is the central tournament in the sport. But the, so, the big thing is 
he's from Albury. That's the huge thing. That's this the, guy that's doing the, all the stuff. That's the, that's the big deal about it. So he's all over there doing these big world things. But he's from little old Albury, Wodonga. And he's very proud of the fact that he is, which is, I've seen it come through his Twitter, particularly over the years, about how excited he gets when he talks about where he grew up, but also if he has a chance to come home. But yeah. also, particularly just in interviews and things, he lights up when anything about Albury seems to come up. So. Oh, that's lovely. Well, so, should, should we just get him on? Well, so let's do it. This is via Skype. From Albury to Austin, Texas, you can buy us a coffee at supportpunchingsideways.com, which keeps this all going along. Yeah. And, yeah, just grab a coffee for yourself and grab us one too. This is Craig O'Shaughnessy from Brain Game Tennis, a world leader in sports analytics in the tennis world. Welcome back, everybody. I'm really excited about today's guest. We've managed to get Craig O'Shaughnessy on today, who will become obvious through today's discussion, has a connection with someone that I'm basically the world's biggest fan of, but also I'm a huge fan of Craig's work as well. He is the founder of BrainGameTennis.com, which I guess, not to be hyperbolic, is probably seen as the world's leading tennis analytics website and also Craig has that reputation as being one of the best in the business so welcome to Punching Sideways Craig welcome in a way via Austin I'm assuming you're in Austin at the moment back to Albury where you grew up so well yes guys um good afternoon from Austin uh it's it's great to connect again you know especially in these times when um it's simply not possible to get on a plane at the moment and, and come back home but uh it's good to connect and and see somebody back in Albury. And uh, you know, I grew up there. I went to went to high school and worked for a year and a half for the Border Mail. Actually, I after high school, I almost I almost went to college at Deakin, and, and then I got um, you know the job at the Border Mail. So I spent a year and a half there, and then went over to the states and and played college tennis and got a degree in journalism. So. And then went back to Albury as we do several times throughout throughout our life. But uh, yeah, currently I'm in Austin, and and hopefully the weather's getting better in in Albury. I imagine it is at this time of year. It's quite warm and steamy. You know that just hits you when you walk outside yes. and you want to. Yeah. What's that comparison like to weather over there where you are at the moment when it gets hot? Austin's not bad. It's kind of a semi-arid climate, so it's pretty dry. Dallas to the north and Houston to the south. Um, can get very humid, but not so bad here. It's uh, it, it's more of a, a dry. It does get really hot, but it's more of a dry heat. So I, I greatly enjoy it. It's Austin's a, a very much an outdoors kind of city. It, of all the places to live, I think between the coast, between California and and Florida or New York, you know, this little pocket of of Texas is fantastic. You've got it's kind of a limestone base that have been washed out over mil- millions of years. So. You get these sweeping valleys and, you know, lots of rivers, lots of lakes, lots of outdoor activities. You know, my place here backs out, you know, kind of into the bush here. And, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting here in an afternoon and see coyotes walk by on the, <laughs> on, the, on, the, uh, on the trail at the back. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story here. We also have roadrunners. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have them out in the front. The other day they were in our backyard. And, and, and this just seems absolutely 
you know, backwards in order. But the other day I'm sitting here and I look out down on the trail out the back and I see a coyote go along and it's being chased by a roadrunner. Oh. Because, because the roadrunner must have babies or, or somewhere around or young ones and, and the roadrunner is kind of pecking at it and flying <laughs> above it and trying to intimidate it. And we all know that that's the wrong way around. It's it's the roadrunner that's always <laughs> cobbing it from the coyote. <laughs> was it going, me me what I was doing here? <laughs> It could have. I was too far away to hear it. Um, yeah. it. It certainly could have. So only in Austin, that one. So oh, That's if, amazing. I mean, I said yeah. to Mel before today's chat, I actually wanted to talk to Craig maybe a little bit later about Austin itself because as a former yes. former musician in my previous life, it's kind of like one of the meccas for music with South it by is. Southwest and just the creative culture there. But you mentioned the Livestone bass. Only someone who was an analytics person yeah. would have mentioned that would have mentioned that level of detail about where they live before mentioning anything else so uh, i think mel mentioned to me earlier she was fascinated by how you got into analytics and you mentioned that you played tennis uh, yes. can you tell us about how you first maybe clued into the fact that i don't just play the game at a high level or and you got you went overseas to do that but also that you clued into, hey, sports analytics is a thing and I'm good at that. Yeah, there's, you know, it's connecting the dots as you look back through the years and, you know, you don't know when these important moments happen, but you look back and it's like, well, that really was an important moment. And, you know, certainly one of them was, you know, back in the, I would say the late 70s was when camcorders first arrived in Australia. So you've got this big VHS pack yes. and, a, and, a, and a shoulder strap and then a long cord to this, to this big camera. And my dad bought one of the very first ones in Australia. Uh, you know, with, I have an older sister and, you know, he wanted some family memories and things that he liked to do. And, you know, he took a lot of videos and we had a lot of family videos and then it kind of lay dormant. And uh, when I started back coaching tennis, I came over and played college tennis. And w when I went back over there, you know, I used this camera a ton to record the technique of players and then later on to stand at the back and put on a tripod and, and record matches because it quickly became evident to me, starting with technique, that, you know, things that I would see with a player, you know, deficiencies in a stroke, they had no idea about. So I'd show them on the video and they're like, oh, I, I, I didn't know I was doing that. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. You, you can't feel that or see that. And that transferred from the technique of a stroke into the strategy of a match. And I think early on for me, all I wanted to do was to help players that I was working with win more matches. That, that's what it boils down to. And you look at the various elements of, of tennis and, you know, you've got to have good technique and you've got to be fast around the court, having good strategy yourself, having the ability to understand an opponent and figure them out, how to make an opponent play bad. And all of these things that you kind of put into, you know, a pie chart, the thing that I found the most important was figuring out the opponent and it was match strategy. And I found that that was where players were the weakest because on a practice court, you know, you're not really playing points. You're really feeding balls as a coach. So it's tough to work on. And then in matches, you can't coach a player. So you can't really get better there. So it was really when I started doing a lot of practice sets and videoing those practice sets and coaching during the practice sets and going over the video of that practice set with a player, that it really started 
to click with me is like, this is the way to help players win more matches. So I've heard that you've said before, you don't need to be good at everything, but you need to be good at something and to pick your, pick your battle. I'm not really good at anything yet, so I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> many, where, many battles. I've got well, many you battles. Are, you but... are, you just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> but how did, you know, that's just an amazing statement in itself and it's so true, but I don't think that until I sort of heard you say it out loud that it really clicked and it's all about, like you said, knowing the opposition and knowing what your strengths are and what obviously your weaknesses are and how to sort of um, probably expose the opposition's weaknesses as well. So how did you come to that conclusion? Was it just as organic or? Well, Mel, first of all, thank you um, for for elevating my uh, my sentence there to, to the level of profound. That is <laughs> <laughs> profound. Something worthwhile. Tennis is a sport that that is so good in this area is that you can be six foot nine like Kevin Anderson and make the top ten in the world. You can be five foot nine like Diego Schwartzman and make the top ten in the world. You can hit the ball dead flat and make the top ten in the world. You can hit with tons of spin. You can stay back and never go to the net. You can go to the net on every point. You can hit with tons of backspin, tons of topspin. There is such a massive variety of ways to be successful. And as a junior, you know, you play these guys that are just pushers, that just have not good technique, but they've figured out that if I can just put the ball in the court, the opponent's going to miss. So I really like the different ways and different techniques and different strategies that you can do well. So I think that statement was really born from looking at different players, looking like a, at a Leighton Hewitt and saying, well, he doesn't have a great serve and he doesn't have a great forehand, but he's number one in the world. And those are the two biggest strengths that most players have. So th- that's really where it came from. And, you know, you look at your body and you say, am I, you know, am I fast or am I slow? Am I, am I good at the front or am I good at the back? And, you know, I, I think that that statement I, you know, I, I kind of elevated that a little bit when I was working with Kevin Anderson or, or started to work with him. And, and I told him that, you know, I said, you don't have to be good at everything, but you got to be good at something. And I, this was at a meeting in Dallas after he lost to Bobby Reynolds, who'd been out with a, a wrist injury for six months. And, you know, Kevin should have won this match easily. And he ended up losing in a third set tiebreaker. And after watching the match, I said, Kevin, you know, you are, the only three things that matter in your in your world are serving, returning, and getting to the net. And I'm like, not only did you perform horribly in those three areas against Bobby, you don't even know how important they are for your game. You know, he he was he was running side to side at the back of the court, thinking that he's a baseliner, and he's not. So as soon as he got the idea in his mind of who he was, and looked in a mirror and go, well, this is how tall I am, this is how tough I am at the net, and this is where I should serve. For the ball to come back um, and and be easy and be a forehand for me, then things really took off for him. So yeah, th- that's a really important one in my career, and it, it just helps filter out a lot of noise. Is people say, "Can you do this?" and you, or "Can you can you not do it?" I'm like, "Well, you know, do you win? It doesn't matter what you do. Do you win more than fifty percent doing it? I, I'm all in. Do more of it." How hard is it to to actually say that to players and get them on board? with that concept because I can, well, I can imagine if you're a professional athlete, there, there's a little bit of ego there, but there's also the thought that 
you know, I want to be good at everything. I don't want to to be that person who's, you know, like you said, like a Leighton Hewitt who's not seen to be be good at the two things that everyone else would perceive as to be. So I imagine that conversation, as as nicely as you just put it, could potentially with different players go a different way and they're just like, oh, I just want to work on that and get better. So how do you get them to that point where they're okay with that? I think to start with, earlier on in my career, I coached at the very first professional tournament I ever coached. So, you know, the, the entry-level professional tournaments back when I was first starting as a coach, you know, in the in the – I graduated Aubrey High in 84. So it's probably, you know, like, you know, 86, 87, you know, I, I'm really into coaching and – you know, I, I wasn't working on the Pro Tour at all. And in 1995, I'm back in Albury, and there's a girl from Madagascar comes for a, a tournament. We have our, our New Year tournament that leads into the Australian Open. And her name's Dowie Randry and Teffy. She's 17 years of age. Um, I tell Morris Tynan, who was the president of the club back then, I'm like, these girls are going to be coming through for this tournament. They're all pros that are going to be playing qualies at – down at the Australian Open, if they, you know, if somebody wants to hit, I'll be a hitting partner. And Dally comes along, and we start hitting. She doesn't know that I coach as well, um, and you know, I, I tell her a couple of things about grass court tennis and to do well. And we get a good report. We start hitting every day, and I watch her matches, and she ends up winning the tournament. And she has a Swiss manager with her at the time, and they say, "Listen, um, we're going to the Australian Open qualifying. We want you to come with us and, and coach her." And I'm like, well, I, I honestly, I've never coached at any professional event anywhere, let alone a 10,000 or 25 or 50, 100, let alone a multi-million dollar Grand Slam. And so I go. I say, yeah, that'd be great. But the, the, the lesson it taught me when you get down there and you get in that environment, we want to deify these players. We want to look at them and say, oh, my goodness, you know, a Roger Federer or a Novak or, you know, whoever it is, these elite players, Andy Murray – they're elite in the way that they can accelerate the head of a racket. They can really make that racket dance and make that ball. They're really good at that. And they're really good at moving around the court fast. But they're not really good at strategy. And they're not really good at thinking. And they have we have normal conversations with them. I mean, we may see, you know, Novak as a, as a, as a rock star, you know, in a global scene and as a tennis god – but, you know, you sit down and have a normal conversation with him. As I did in 2017 in L.A., um, I started working with him in 2017. If you remember back then, he played half the season and the, the second half he he was out. He quit at Wimbledon against Thomas Burdich with an elbow injury. So then we meet up again in the end of 2017 in L.A. And it's just, you know, he happened to be in the States. I fly out there. We're getting ready for 2018. And and so there's there's no real agenda on the meeting. It's just to kind of prepare. So there's you know we, we meet we're on the 65th floor of this downtown LA skyscraper. We're in a sushi restaurant in a private room, and we just start talking like small talk. You know how's the kids? How are you doing? What's happening? And 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 then it's kind of like no that you know do you want to see kind of the work that I do? And you know in a, in a normal day it's like sure I'd love to. And I'm like well most of it's on you. I have this presentation that I do all over the world. It's like two hours long and it's about analytics. And and he's like, great. So I start showing him. I go, Novak, you know, this baseline position, A, B, C, D, and A is out wide in the juice court. 
where you're going to hit forehands as a right-hander, and, and B is in the juice court but the inner side, and C is in the ad court. And I'm like, Novak, tennis is a C to C sport. More balls go here than anywhere else. And I go, you've got the world's best backhand. I don't care. This is a forehand-dominated sport. And I go, when the ball comes to C, you've got to run around and hit a forehand. I mean, it's a pretty basic thing. He leaps up out of his chair, and he's like, this is so great, Craig. This is exactly what I want for you. It's like, and, and I'm looking at it. What, I mean, what I say? He's like, this is how I lost to Del Potro at the Olympics. It's like I was, I was a little banged up. I wasn't moving well. And I remember just kept settling for backhands in C. Um, and I should have been hitting runaround forehands. And I remember him hitting all these runaround forehands. And he goes, Craig, you know, I've got to make a decision in a match. Is it, you know, it's, it's, it's usually it's an either or. Do I serve wide or do I serve T? Do I hit a forehand? Do I hit a backhand? Do I go to the net? Do I stay back? And he's like, your numbers and your analytics and your strategy are exactly what I need to help me in this area. So I'm like, well, great. That's that, that puts us on the same wavelength. But here's the is the kicker. Here's the is the real funny thing. So he goes, okay, Craig, you're telling me to hit forehands. You know, the ball comes to my backhand side. If I can run around, and hit a forehand. I'm like, yep, absolutely. I show him in London in five years in the tour finals, he's hitting 76% forehand winners and 24% backhand winners. So he's all in. So here's his question. Craig, where do I hit it? I, and I, I, no, I can we, Sorry, Craig. Not. Can we preface this by saying that between 2014 <laughs> and the middle of 2016, Novak was maybe the most dominant men's player maybe of all time? So uh, you're telling a guy who's season. just come off God mode at a level probably yes. no one's ever played at before, yep. how to play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. It's exactly right. So he says, he goes, Craig, where do I hit it? So, you know, we're having this normal conversation, but at this time it dawns on me and I'm like, am I being set up here? Am I being set up? So I, I honestly, I look around the room, like up at where the wall meets the ceiling for a hidden camera. And I'm like, you know, is this kind of a, you know, one of those funny gotcha shows that, you know, <laughs> Novak's setting Craig up. So I look at, you know, I have a quick look around and there's nothing there. I'm like, well, Novak, I go, you hit it. I go, the first, you run the 2-1 pattern, which is you hit a deep to C to their backhand. You push them back. They come back cross court. You move up a step. You take them wide and then you finish to eight. I go, the, the, nearly all, four, not nearly all, but the majority of forehand winners are hit to the opponent's forehand. He leaps up out of his chair again. And he starts doing these shadow swings with his forehand. And he's like, this is perfect. He goes, I never knew this. He's, he goes, as soon as I run around to hit a forehand, I want to hit it straight down the line. And he, I go, he goes, as soon as I do that, the opponent easily gets it. And then they hit me cross court. Then I've got to hit this sliding forehand. And I'm like, yeah, the last thing you want to do is go down the line because your opponent's in the middle of the court. You've got to push them back and push them wide first. He's like, I never knew that. He goes, this is perfect. And I, I'm, it's a. This is a conversation I would have, you know, w with anyone. And and to, you know, tie a bow on this, we uh, after he wins the 2018 U.S. Open, and we go, we all go to a Italian restaurant in, in uh, the middle of Manhattan, and it's party time. And you know, we we call my son. You know, he's so nice. I do a Facetime with my son back here in Austin, and Novak saying hi. Just super super nice, and. And I say to him, you know, we've had a we've had a couple of red wines. And I go, no, <laughs> I go, no, that people ask me what it's like to work with you. And he and he laughs. He's like, well, what do you tell them? I said, I go, no, that I give you the ultimate compliment. And he's like, what's that? I said, it's like working with a fourteen-year-old boy. <laughs> and he laughs, and I could tell he's you know the Australian and the Serbian. He's not quite getting this. 
And I, so I have to explain. I said, listen, a 14-year-old boy is thirsty for knowledge and they want to get better so badly and they want to learn and they want to be better tomorrow. I go, that's you. I go, you are always asking me questions. You are always absorbing what I'm saying. You are always trying to get better. And again, you know, Josh, like what you said, he's just come off, I think it was 82 and 6 in 2015. He's just come off God mode and he cannot wait to talk about tennis and get the next piece of information and, and those analytics that I have. So, you know, we won during that period, we won three grand slams in a row and, you know, took him back from, you know, the brink of almost quitting our sport back to, you know, in, in the middle of 2018, he was 22 in the world, yep. you know, finding his way back. And by the end of 2018, he was one. Obviously, I said to Craig, I warned him that I'm a huge Novak fan. So <laughs> I want to I want to get back to just asking a few things about Novak in a sec, just to round that off. But Mel did sure. ask earlier, Novak's always been seen as someone that, other than his physical gifts, his mental focus which can wane at times, which is something I wanted to ask you about. But when he is actually fully mental, mental focused, he's at a different level to most people. Is he a unique case of someone wanting to continue? He was already the best player in the world. Was he unique in the fact that he was open to someone that maybe he didn't have a massive relationship with critiquing his game at that level? Or, or are all players yeah. open to that? They're absolutely not. They're absolutely not all open to that. In fact, when I first started doing this, um, you know, I'm li- as, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm living in Dallas and, um, you know, th- an obvious fit for me was to partner with the USTA and, you know, I'm doing all this work. In 2005, Dartfish came out with match tagging. So that enabled me on my computer to record a match, whether it's a match that I did or off TV, put it in the computer, create a bunch of buttons that have different functionality, tag the match. And essentially say, all I want to do is see forehand winners. All I want to do is see first serves out wide. All I want to do is see backhand errors. So instead of, for the first time, watching a match chronologically, you watch it by patterns. And that's when everything leapt out of the computer at me. And, you know, another thing I talk about tennis is, you know, tennis looks like a game of pinball with all these random randomness going on, but it's a game of repeatable patterns. And, And that helped me there. So the reason I'm telling you this is that, Tennis essentially is not about you. And that's a big thing. Once you realize that, that's a big thing. And, and as I just come back to the USTA, I've got all this stuff. I've got all this data. I've got all these patterns. I go to the USTA. They're like, Craig, you know, this is like 2005, 6, 7, 8, 2010. You think they'd be on board with it. They don't want any piece of it. They're like, nah, we've never used it. It's overrated. We don't understand it. Don't want any part of it. So when I first started working with Novak, the very first time we met face-to-face, was at the start of the 2017 Australian Open. So there was Murray and Vida and, and Novak and I, and we sat down at a table in the player restaurant at the Australian Open. You know, again, nice to meet you. We, we, we kind of had some correspondence. And, you know, we, we start chatting. I said, Novak, there's a lot of things. You know, I've already shown you that there's a lot of things I can do for you. But what do you want from me? How can I help you the best? And he's like, Craig, there's three things. I'm like, okay, we're getting somewhere. He goes, the first thing is every match I play, every single match, I want you to give me a game plan. I want you to analyze the opponent. I want there to be no guessing. He goes, too often in, in the past, I, you know, I, we lose to players that we guess about or we don't know about or we don't research about. You know, I, 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 you can do that. 
You can do that with your software and your knowledge and your ability. We can take the guessing off the table. Even if it's a player I have never played before, you you can give me a game plan on how to play that player and, and, and I'll follow it and, and we can be victorious there. I'm like, absolutely, I will do that. And there goes, the second thing is, I want you to study me because, and, and Josh, you're, you're going to fall off your chair. He goes, because I've hardly ever seen myself play. Hardly ever. I don't watch myself. Right. I don't have anybody to cut the tape up. I don't have anybody to, to look at it. And he's like, he goes, Craig, for sure, there's things that I'm doing on the court that I think are a good idea that are not. And there's things that I'm not doing that I should be doing. And it's like, as a player, I'm not, I don't know that. I, and I'm not going to be able to find that out, but you are. So I want you to study my game and I want you to tell me how I should be playing and, 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 and let's bring to the table new ideas about my game because I want to get better. And then the third thing was, he goes, I want you to pay particular attention to these couple other guys that I've got that I tend to meet later in tournaments. And, you know, we kind of laugh, which is obviously Roger and, and, and Rafa. He's like, you know, my, my main opponents that for the big matches, let's spend a little bit more time analyzing those. So, you know, know that, you know, he came to me to start with basically saying, I, I'm a sponge. I want to learn. I want to get better. I'm all into this. And then, you know, I, I said to him, he's like, you know, in a pre-match analysis, I can get a lot of data. How much do you want me to filter it down? He's like, give me everything you've got. So, you know, over a period of time working with Marion and working with Novak, we, we got the pre-match game plan down where it became very – very impactful for him to see short videos. So I, was, I made a lot of two-minute videos. Here's where the here's where the opponent's going to serve. Here's all the videos on break points. Here's here's the best patterns of play on this video. Um, and, and it could have been a prior match that Novak played. It could have been um, the previous round that he played. Or it could have been somebody else. But again, in, in in looking at that, you know, as as an overview, the number one goal in a tennis match is not to play great. It's it, because you just can't. You know, you look back. If you look back and say, okay, in the last 50 matches I've played, how many did, did I walk off the court and say, I was amazing today. I played, my forehand was good, my backhand was good, my serve was phenomenal. And most people are going to say two, two matches out of 50. So what happens to the other 48 when you do not bring your A game to the court? Your goal is not to bring your A game to the court every time. Your goal is to make your opponent play their B game or their C game or their D game. And that's why Novak is so good. Because he's a chameleon, you know. Every single match, I'm not get, I'm not preparing him by saying, "Novak, you're really good at this. You're really good at that." Well, that's kind of a given. We've already taken care of that. The pre-match analysis every time is about the opponent. Novak, this is a guy where you play to A. You return to B, middle forehand, and you attack him wide to the out wide of the forehand. This next match is you will play to the backhand. This match you serve wide more. This match you serve T more. So if you're scouting against Novak. You're going to look at you're going to look at him in, in different matches, see him doing a bunch of different things, and it's simply because he's doing what the opponent doesn't want, doesn't want to see, and he's doing it all the time. And it looks to the casual fan that it's just Novak being Novak, but it's it's far from that. It's Novak shoving down the opponent's throat exactly what they don't want. Yeah, that's. I it. mean, as a tennis nerd, that's amazing. And can I just ask a question? maybe just when maybe the plan doesn't go right. In the 2018 London ATP finals, I think it was in, I think it was in the I think it was in the group stage. 
Novak beat Alexander Zverev in a way where in the second set, I thought Alexander Zverev was ready to quit tennis. The look on his face was... Four and one. I think that match was four and one. And... Or four and two, maybe. That was a look I hadn't seen a young player give in a long time. I'm like, I just don't know what to do with this guy. And then a couple of matches later, they met in the final and Novak was a bit off. There was something off about his game and Zverev played much better. But was that... Yeah. A case of the plan cha- the plan changed for no reason and he didn't play the same way or the plan just didn't work that second time. And I know yeah, this is getting really pretty good. nerdy, but it's just two games that stand out from what you just said. Yeah. No, it, it's, there, there's, a, there's a lot of history there. So Zverev in general, a, as a younger player, as a, as a maturing player, before he got all this double fault garbage into his game, you know, I, I first laid eyes on Zverev when he was 15, and it was in Houston. He was playing a future, and I'm sitting next to this guy. It was a good, good player, uh, probably around 200 in the world. And I see Zverev playing, and I'm like, "Who's that kid?" And he says, "Alexander Zverev." And I watch him play for a little bit, and I'm like, "That's that guy's going to be number one in the world." And the kid beside the guy beside him loses his mind. He's Bulgarian, <laughs> loses his mind. And he's like, there's no way. So he turns his, his phone on and the recorder's like, Craig, repeat that because I'm going I'm to hold you to this. And I'm like, yep, that guy over there is going to be number one in the world, Alexander Zverev. And he's like, he goes, and he, he just cannot believe it. And then he says, you know, as Bulgarian, he's like, well, you know, he follows Dimitrov from the same country. He's like, he goes, are you telling me, are you telling me that, that Zverev is going to be have a better career than Dimitrov? I'm like, absolutely. So, you know, that's coming to fruition right now. And, you know, I, every now and then I send him a text, you know, like, you know, remember Houston, remember? Yeah. So I, I, I keep getting at him. But anyway, early in Zverev's career, his huge problem was his forehand. And it was just the size of his backswing is too big. And he doesn't defend well with it. If he's got time, he's fine. So you attack Zverev to A all the time. His backhand is a joke how good it is. It's so simple. So it's a real simple game plan is you only go to the backhand to open up the forehand. So you push him back to the backhand and you move him over there so he's now got to hit a running forehand. And what Zverev does badly is when he when he moves to, towards a backhand, he'll go and cut the angle off and move into the court. But when he moves to a forehand, he goes back at an angle. So he's, he's giving up ground. Then his racket goes too steep up the back of the uh, – trying to put spin on it. He's, he's too big. He's not modifying his swing and he makes a ton of errors. So that's the game plan. So they play in Shanghai at the end of the year. And – it's it's close in the first. I think two all or thereabouts, and it, and it's really close, really close. And then Novak gets ahead of him and breaks him, and 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 you just see Zverev taps out. He's deflated, um, he's down, he's 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 just vomiting up forehand error after forehand error. He knows Novak's on it. He knows Novak's pounding it, and Zverev has no chance. And he just, you know, Alexander's young, and he and he taps out and goes away. So then we go to London. Game plan, I go and, rec- again, record that match. I pull out all the points for Novak that were the right strategy. I make the videos. We are unbelievably super prepared. But we know Zverev's coming. So, And we know Zverev generally serves down the tee a lot in the juice court. So you kind of sit on that. So in the group stage, it gets to four all in the first, and it's really tight. And, in fact, at four all, Zverev has two break points on Novak's serve. And, you know, this, is, this, is, this could be the match. I mean, it could be the first set. And then, you know, exponentially could be the match. And, and Zverev makes two bad errors. Makes two errors. Uh, I think one was bad, but another one was an error. And he loses that. Then he loses, I think, four money. And he taps out and goes away. So, he, he, you know, it, there comes a breaking point for a young Zverev where he just, he just can't handle it anymore. So then we've got the final. I'm like, this is going to be a piece of cake. 
So I, I sit down with Novak. Um, you know, we're, we're in, you know, there's, there's myself, Novak's sitting literally right here on this small little bench in, in the player room. Marion's on a seat here. Marion and I discuss how we're going to deliver the information. I deliver a piece of information. I be quiet. We let Novak marinate on it for, you know, however long he wants, a few seconds. He talks and then Marion comes in and, and adds and then we go to the next thing. That's the process. So we've got the game plan all worked out. We watch the video of Shanghai. We watch the video cut up. We, we know exactly what Zero is going to do. We know where he's weak. I feel really good about it. The match is three points old, and I am freaking out because this is not the same kid. <laughs> and, and, and the only thing I can think, and I need to ask Ivan Lendl this, is that I think that match was an Ivan Lendl masterpiece. Because I think Zverev was too young to figure this out on his own. And what he needed to tell Zverev and what Zverev did was Zverev came out and said, you know, I could just imagine Ivan in the, in the locker room going, listen, today you hit the ball. Today you hit the ball harder than you've ever hit the ball. Today you hit every ball as hard as you can possibly hit it. You attack and you attack some more and you push him back and you hit winners and you force errors and, and you look into the mirror and you take that six foot five or six foot seven frame and you jam it down Novak's throat. No more being a little boy today. You go after him. And right from the start, every single time Zverev hit the ball, he crushed it. Way more than Shanghai, way more than group stage. Zverev essentially is passive. He hardly ever comes to the net. He just wants to rally. He wants to hit passive back ends, but not in that final. And he 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 was just hitting thunder. He, I think he he made twenty five he made twenty five of twenty eight first serves in the first set, um, and he averaged I think one hundred and forty two miles an hour. I've never seen a set of tennis like it. Never seen. It was unbelievable. He was crushing forehands. He was crushing back ends. And and then sometimes in a match. You know, you watch the ball going back and forth and you watch Novak and you watch Alexander. I remember in that match, I'm just watching Alexander because when you just focus in on one player, you get to feel how much the opponent's pushing them around and how much time they have and how comfortable they look. So I'm just staring straight at Alexander and he looks so insanely comfortable. <laughs> he, he, looks like, he looks like he's got a month to hit every shot. He's so early prepared and he's hitting the ball as hard as he's ever hit in his life. And at four all... Novak is the one that taps out with a bad drop shot, with a backhand drop shot that goes halfway up the net. And from then on, it was game over. And I've never seen Zverev play a set like that since, and I've never seen him play a match like that since. Do you think that comes down to a little bit like you've got nothing to lose type attitude? Yes, but I think that's only half of it because I think every time somebody goes up against Novak, they've got nothing to lose, but they don't bring the house. I think there's there's, there's that with – Today is your day to bring the house. You are not coming off this court unless you have averaged 140 miles an hour. You're not coming off this court unless you've hit 42 winners to his 11. It's that kind of mentality. Today is the day where you unleash the seven horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) So on the back of that, just that amazing little story, who would you put as as the top coach that you would – you know, that you look up to and go, oh, you bossed me there. <clears throat> like, because obviously it's naive probably I'm I'm not as engrossed in tennis stats as Josh, but it'd be naive to think that not everyone is starting to analyse opposition players or anything like that. So, of course, there's going to be a point where 
people start to work out as well what Novak's doing or the opposition are doing. So who would you look up to and is sort of progressing through in an innovative way in their own sort of tactics, I suppose? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, Ivan Lendl is, you know, obviously was a fantastic player and has a great mind. You know, he heard stories of, you know, the books that he has, that he writes notes, you know, kind of old school notes on players is insanely thick and, and thorough with what he does. So um, I'd put him there, you know, Tony Nadal, you know, I think has done an, an incredible job. I think Carlos Moyer does a really good job. They're thirsty, very thirsty for data. I mean, they see, you know, once I got with Novak and once people saw, you know, Novak was, uh, some people were just writing him off, his career off, you know, he's not going to come back. You know, when he started in 2018, the bad loss at Indian Wells, the bad loss in Miami, people were actually writing him off and for him to come back and, and do as well. So there's other younger coaches that see Craig's doing it, Novak's doing it, let's get on this train. They see it in other sports. We've got the movie Moneyball that, you know, it's like, it, it, how do you fight it? How do you fight analytics? And and tennis, you know, the, the funny thing about tennis is official st- statistics first started in 1991, which is yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. 1991 just, just happened. Baseball, football, basketball, you know, over here, that they could, you know, you could find out, you know, the starting point guard in 1918, you know, what he shot in the NBA. Um, you, you got stats going back forever. So tennis is so new to the, the, the sport, or analytics is so new to our sport. You know, we're just really starting to dig in. And, and you know, maybe, maybe I was the first or one of the first that got very serious with it, but there's there's more people coming in now, which is fantastic. I mean, you, you know, they should, and, and we should have a more analytical approach because it's more analytical in one sense means more complicated, but it's not. It's more simple. It just, you know, all the analytics, like Novak said, do I, if the ball comes here, do I hit a forehand or a backhand? Novak, you hit a forehand. That's what analytics does. I'm listening to you and this thing keeps popping up in my head and I'm just going to share it because it's when I was playing tennis as a young 15, 16-year-old girl um, and there was this old guy called Georgie Dunstan in um, the Tulangda District League <laughs> and he would have been about 80. He had varic- varicose veins. <laughs> he could barely move. Yet he owned the court so much because he would hit it where you couldn't get to. He just got it right. back mm-hmm. and he would make you run around until you were so exhausted. <laughs> and he just could match it like he just was consistently getting it. And I think back then, well, probably back when all this sort of stuff, he'd, he'd just worked it out. And I, I know now as you get, you're talking about, uh, when you're sort of younger, potentially, you know, you're not as switched on. You can lose it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I know that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the the younger the younger students would step up to Georgie Dunstan, and he would just blow them off the court because they would lose their, they would lose their mind. Like, oh, he's this old guy; he can barely move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, he just so. Obviously, it's a tactic that works, and you're doing it on a, a much grander scale. But I, I just needed to share that because there is a lot into the mind part of it that I think that until maybe you've come along or whatever, that a lot of people probably don't appreciate as much. So, just Mel, I'm I'm assuming what you're driving at is the focus on, as Craig said earlier, 
trying to make your opponent play poorly yeah. as a, as opposed to and I'm not sure maybe Craig knows where that <laughs> historical momentum in tennis came from but it was very much a sport of you should be naturally gifted versus the other person that's naturally gifted and yeah. you should try to out hit each other yeah and yeah yeah I don't know if Craig has anything to say about what Mel's getting at there, but your perspective no. probably wasn't popular to start with. It's about making your opponent perform poorly, which can, to some people, make the game a bit ugly. And, yeah, it's yeah. a good point. It's a good point. Well, with George, what what happens in those kind of situations is you 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 get you look at the wrong things. You look at how old he is, <laughs> and you get a false sense of security. Yeah. You look at how bad his strokes are. And you get a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. You look at how, you know, how slow you think he moves around the court, and you get a false sense of security. In all three of those instances, you're looking at the wrong thing. You just need to look at the ball. Yeah. You need to look at the ball. And as soon as you start looking at the ball, you realize the magnificence of that man, and he's putting the ball where the opponent doesn't want it consistently. Yeah. And that's what he's figured out. So, yeah, those kind of players, I love them. They're fantastic. And, you know, you don't need to be technically better. Um, You don't need to hit it harder. You you, you can beat those players and and you can actually drive them crazy. And, you know, one of the things that... (laughs) That, that, that I'm always looking for. And, you know, it's, it's going to happen in the semis and the finals. It's happening in the ATP finals right now where at some stage in the match, an opponent's going to tap out. Or very, very few matches in tennis, you get the eventual loser battling and scraping and clawing and crawling and giving every single ounce they've got all the way to the finish line doesn't happen. And there's sophisticated ways where they start tanking. And a lot of it is they start taking on a ton more risk by going for a lot bigger shots. They go for shots um, a lot earlier in the point Mm -hmm. than they normally would. And sometimes it works out. It's like, well, I don't care anymore. Let me just go for it. I'm probably going to lose anyway. And 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 they it goes well for a, a short period and then it doesn't. And then they eventually, you know, come back to reality. So, um, yeah, it's just just a, a wonderful element of our sport that that George can be so successful. <laughs> that was generally what would happen. The young ones definitely would lose their patience with with the the rally and just try and crack yes. it back, and you'd just go pop it back, and they just lose their shit. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, can I just bring up two games just to finish up? Just talking about Please. Novak for a sec. These are two games since while you were actually involved with Novak, so I want to focus on those. The Australian Open final in 2019, which to me is probably as well as I've ever seen Novak play against one of the best three tennis players of all time. And he frustrated Nadal in a way that I very rarely, well, I don't think I've ever seen Nadal feel like he had no chance to play the game that Mm -hmm. he wanted. He just could not get into his game at all. And he was making uncharacteristic errors. Because as perfect and as accurate as Novak is, part of Nadal's thing is determination and always fighting to get every ball back. What right. what happened in that game? Obviously, Novak went to – you see all the memes on the internet from Dragon Ball Z of him going Super Saiyan with gold flames coming out of his head and all that crazy <laughs> stuff. But yeah. what was it about that game that – because, I mean, Nadal's obviously got a stronger record against Novak as probably anyone does across a wide gamut of games – what was it in that particular match that just separated those two? The match was over before it started. 
hey guys, sorry about the massive cliffhanger there. It just kind of made sense to finish this episode, being part one up in that particular place. In part two, which will be out next week, we're going to finish the story of Novak v Nadal at the Oz Open 2019. We're also going to talk a little bit about Novak's game against Federer at Wimbledon 2019 that a lot of people consider to be one of the great matches of all time now. We also talk about Craig's love and admiration for Wimbledon, the tournament itself, and he shares a couple of incredible Wimbledon stories about stuff that he had the chance to do that growing up he never would have imagined ever being able to do. And we finish up talking about Craig's feelings on Aubrey Wodonga and the surrounding area, how he feels that it was an incredible place to grow up, and how growing up in this area perhaps set him up for all the things he's doing now on a global scale. So part two is super interesting. And if anything, has maybe an even tighter local focus. So keep an eye out and an ear out for part two. Thank you so much for sticking with Punching Sideways. Mel and I really appreciate it. We've been getting some really incredible direct messages and comments and stuff lately. It's pretty amazing, actually, and really humbling. That stuff's just all fuel to keep our little pirate radio station kind of floating along. Okay, from Mel and I, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you in part two with Craig O'Shaughnessy from Brain Game Tennis.